Uh, my name's Jeff. If we haven't met yet, I want to... Um, going to say it again. I used to say I'm one of the pastors, but I'm really the only pastor right now. So um, so thanks for being with us. I'm going to try to be a little quicker because we got a lot going on if you're watching your time, but you all got plenty of sleep, so we could go all day, right? I'm going to start with a joke this morning. I haven't done that for a while. It's moderately funny, so I want to lower your expectations. A man observed a, a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her cart As they passed the cookie section, the child asked for cookies, and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Ellen, we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. He passed the mother again in the candy aisle, of course. The little girl began to shout for candy, and when she was told she couldn't have any candy, she began to cry. The mother said, There, there, Ellen. There, there, Ellen. Don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. The man again happened to be behind the pair at the checkout, and there the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there would be no gum purchased today. The mother patiently said, Ellen, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Ellen. The mother broke in. My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Ellen. Thanks. Thanks. See, if I undersell it, then you're more likely to. Well, we're going to talk about patience this morning. It's pretty important. We're talking about being in exile in modern-day Babylon and how how do we maintain our Christianity in a culture that doesn't want us to be Christian. I think patience, I don't even think I need to convince you, but I think I will this morning, but patience is critical, and I think we undervalue it. It's critical. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. It's our last week with Daniel. Next week we'll be with Ezekiel. We've been looking at these prophets, right? And we'll talk about this. Jeremiah, um, well, I'll wait. I'll wait to get there. Let's, let's, read, let's read these first few verses, then we'll talk about Jeremiah. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, this would be the year 522, history tells us, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So now we'll talk about Jeremiah. Remember, at the beginning of the series, we talked about how Jeremiah wrote this letter. If you weren't with us, you could go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. The exiles are like, man, it's only going to be a few months, maybe a year at most, and then we're going back to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah's like, ah, no. Uh, You're going to be there for 70 years. Have families, have kids, have grandkids. Seek the welfare of the city because your home is Babylon. You're you're stuck in Babylon. And then we talked about that it took a while for the Jews to accept this, but then they did, and then they got really good at living in Babylon, and so God sent other prophets, Daniel being one of them. Okay, look, I know you've got to seek the welfare of the city, but don't become Babylonian. Do not lose your identity as the people of God. And so that's what we've been trying to look at as we've been going through Daniel. And here, it's the year 522, Daniel is... We, if you were with us last week, Daniel is this very high-ranking, maybe, I mean, the most powerful person in the Persian Empire behind the king, Darius, and Darius is empowering Daniel to 
lead his empire. Daniel's really good at his job. He's in his 80s now, probably. Says he's calculating out these years from Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years. It's probably been about 65 years. So Daniel's reflecting, he's thinking, he's like, oh, it's been 65 years. That means five years. Five years until this prophecy from Jeremiah is fulfilled. And so I think Daniel's getting excited. Five years is going to happen. And he breaks into this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. I'm not going to read it. I was going to, but for the sake of time, you can read it later today on your own. It begins in verse 3. Daniel's going to turn his face to the Lord. He's going to pray. If I was teaching a seminary class, it'd be fun to walk through with you, talk about how this prayer just ties so well with the Old Testament story. It's a rich, deep prayer. And so much of the prayer, Daniel is crying out, putting his, we'll talk about putting our hope in God. He's putting his hope in God, and he's declaring the truth about who God is. This is a merciful God. This is a forgiving God. Daniel is going to confess his sins, the sins of his people. It's a beautiful prayer. Asking God to move. And then we're going to pick up in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the, says the man Gabriel, we, we, it's the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, and he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel! I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. You've made this request. You've looked at these years. You've made this prayer. Verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. Why? For you are greatly loved. We're going to come back and end on that, but I want you to think about this. Gabriel doesn't say a lot. He says, I've come to give you wisdom, but before I tell you what I'm going to say, let me remind you, you are greatly loved. Knowing that's going to be really important for what is about to be said. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I'm not going to read through the whole vision. It begins in 24, goes through the end of the chapter. Again, if we were doing a class, if we had a little bit more time, if I wasn't preaching through a series on exile, we could look at this. It's actually really cool what Daniel's prophesying and what's going to happen if you know anything about history. What happens after the Persian Empire, we get into the time of Alexander the Great. And we get into the division of Alexander the Great because he died at 33 years old. His kingdom gets divided up and that's where we learn about the Maccabees and the Jewish time and all this stuff goes on. And then the Roman Empire. And Daniel is going to be prophesying out into the future. It's really cool stuff. But, but this, is, this is what we're going to focus in this morning as we're learning to live as exiles. 70 weeks, verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people. In your holy city. I'm going to stop there. You can keep reading if you want, but 70 weeks. So let me put this into perspective for you. Daniel gets Jeremiah's letter. He reads it 70 years. He does the math. We got five more years to go. It's been 65 years, five years. And Gabriel says, Ah, uh, Daniel, it's not 70 years, it's 70 weeks of years. It's 77, it's 490 years. You thought you had five years, you actually have 425 years. So what do you do? What do you do when you have your heart set on five years and you find out it's 425 years? 
Well, you need to learn patience is what you need. <laughs> and you need to learn, we'll say that this way, you need to learn patience with God. I'm going to talk a little bit about patience this morning, living in exile. I think patience is key. I know I just, we're using Daniel as an example. Daniel is going to have to live in this patience. But I thought, I was just having fun flipping through the New Testament. The New Testament talks a lot about patience. In Acts chapter 1, you got the resurrected Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit, kind of the growth, the explosion of the church. And in verses 3 to 4, what does the resurrected Jesus say to the disciples? In Acts 1 verses 3 and 4, Jesus presents himself to them, appears to them for 40 days, And then he orders them not to depart. In essence, one of the first things Jesus commands his disciples at the resurrected Jesus is stay where you are and wait. Stay and wait. That's one of the first things Jesus tells the disciples. Stay and wait. Well, let's flip through some of these letters. Romans 5, I'm going to give you a definition for patience in a little bit. But Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. Paul writes, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. This is going to tie into our definition. Knowing that suffering produces, my translation says endurance. Yours might say patience. Suffering and patience go hand in hand. Suffering produces patience. And endurance or patience produces character. Character is a beautiful thing. We talk about being formed to be like Jesus. And this character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love, there's that love again, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or we'll jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We talk a lot about this chapter because it gives us the mathematics of love, right? If you read through 1 Corinthians 13, you will find the mathematics of love. Anything minus love equals zero. That's what Paul says. Anything minus love equals no- it's nothing. You pull love out of anything and it's nothing. And as Paul begins to tell us what love is and what isn't, what love isn't, he says, love is patient. It's the first thing he says. Love is patient and love is kind. Or if you begin to walk in the Holy Spirit, when you give your life to Jesus, the Spirit of God fills your heart, fills your life, empowers you, equips you for living. And we find out that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. And some other things too, but patience is right there. Or if we turn to the book of James, the letter James wrote, James the brother of Jesus, James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you meet hardships, sufferings, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or again, your translation may say patience, and let this steadfastness or this patience have its full effect. What's the full effect? That you may be perfect and complete. Now, as you become patient, you lack nothing what James says. I'm going to talk about patience this morning. And I also want to let you know that today is November 7th and the church celebration of the year. It's Persecuted Christian Sunday. Many of you know Lenny Mack. He was at first service, so I embarrassed him then. He's not in here to be embarrassed now, but Lenny's awesome. Lenny's been here even longer than Glenn, I think. Lenny's been here since the beginning. And Lenny is just, if you don't know Lenny, it's because he's always serving behind the scenes, doing all kinds of important things. I mean, Lenny is just a gift to our church. And Lenny emailed me a few weeks ago and said, Jeff, on Persecuted Christian Sunday, will you mention it? Because I think sometimes we forget how privileged we are in the country we live in and what our brothers and sisters around the globe have to deal with when you start talking about persecution. 
And when Lenny asks, I try to say yes. So I was, I was thinking on patience and how does Persecuted Christian Sunday apply. And one of the books I've been reading lately, I'm not done with it yet, but it's a book by Alan Kreider called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I, I like to read about the church in different countries at different times. I think we're in a unique season, right? We're coming out of this pandemic, so we might need to think differently about some things. There's obviously all kinds of things happening with technology. There's this thing coming our way called the metaverse. And I think we're going to have to talk about what does that mean for our church. So I like to do a lot of thinking. I like to get out of our present moment. And so I was reading this book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And as you would imagine, we're talking a lot about how central patience was to the early church. That they wrote several papers or treatises on patience. They often talked, even though the church was exploding quickly in those first few hundred years, they continued to value patience. He talks about, if you you know some of the early church fathers like Tertullian or Justin Martyr, many of these talked about patience, but I'm going to just talk about one, Origen. Origen was trying to disciple young Christians in Caesarea so they would not wilt in persecution. There was a lot of persecution in the early church especially prior to Constantine. And this is what it says. It says that Origen knew that when Christians are not properly trained, persecution can destroy them. And so for Origen, he felt like these believers can survive only if they had been formed so that they embody the virtue of patience. Patience is key to our discipleship, to our formation You and I should be praying for the persecuted church and pray for their patience. We all need patience. Well, this all ties together as I give you my definition. This comes from, I mentioned this kind of pilot group that I'm in with some of our elders and our spouses, led by a couple out in Seattle. And we were talking about virtues and vices, as we talked about last week, this week, and next week, we're going to talk about a virtue. And remember, I said every virtue comes with two vices— The vices are either when you have too much of the virtue, it's an excess, it's a vice. Or when you have too little, it's a deficiency, it's a vice. So what does that mean for patience? Well, this is how I want to define patience this morning. Patience is the moral skill of suffering pain beautifully. I like that definition. Patience is the moral skill of suffering pain beautifully. I hope you see how this is all, these verses I read and everything. Or, because we're Christians, you could also say uh, suffering pain as Jesus suffered pain. That would be beautiful, right? Jesus is the definition of beauty. (laughs) The cruciformed is the beautiful. So that's what patience is. And I've shared this before. I've been told it's not a medical definition of pain, but it's my discipleship definition of pain. When I talk about pain in the context of discipleship, I like to think of pain. I think this captures most of what we would experience as pain. Pain is having something you don't want or not having something you do want. That's often what we experience as pain. So it's the moral skill of suffering that pain beautifully. Now one extreme, excess, would be, the vice would be suffering that is unnecessary. You're you're suffering and it's not necessary. Or suffering that is done self-righteously. I think Jesus talks a little bit about that in the Gospels even. But I'm not going to talk as much about that vice this morning. I want to talk about the deficiency of patience. That's the other vice because I believe the vice of impatience is actually a virtue in modern day Babylon. And you and I have to recognize this. (laughs) 
But the, imp- the, the vice of impatience is to be unwilling to suffer pain at all or unwilling to suffer pain beautifully. Doesn't that sound like modern-day Babylon? I mean, you and I were formed. There's liturgies all over the place that, that tell us that we should not have to suffer pain at all or, I mean, you think about the last 18 months, or if you suffer pain, do it in an ugly way. Don't do it beautifully. <laughs> it's impatience. And I've shared this with you before, but I come back to this frequently even for myself. The lie that impatience tells you, or I could say the lie of one of, one of the many lies of modern-day Babylon, is that life isn't worth living until you get everything you want. Isn't that one of the lies that's just out there in modern-day Babylon? Life's not worth living until you get everything you want and or you get rid of everything you don't want. If you don't have everything you want or you haven't gotten rid of everything you don't want, then life's not worth living. So figure it out. That's one of the lies of modern-day Babylon. And it can seep its way into the church. This kind of impatience leads to the idolatry of a you-can-have-it-all-right-now kind of religion. It's what we call the prosperity gospel, and it's destructive for your soul. It's not good for you. So let's talk a little bit more about modern-day Babylon and the Bible. I think just a, just a brief summary, modern-day Babylon would say, be fast and loud, the faster the better. In fact, anything made faster is better. And be loud be upset and enraged, demand it now. Demand it now, right? Because life's not worth living until you get it. So demand it now. Take it if you have to and wait for nothing. That's modern day Babylon. If you're just drifting through life, that's, that's going to seep into your soul. It's going it's to, it's going to, it's toxic is what it is. But we'll talk about the Bible, this counterscript. Remember, we're exiles, and we don't want to lose our identity as the people of God. So what does our, what does our story tell? Well, our story says, be still and know. And our story says, be at rest and at peace. And our story says, have patience. And our story says, wait for God. And if I could press a little bit more... One of the ironies, I think, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I was thinking about this this week. One of the ironies of modern-day Babylon, if I'm thinking about this correctly, is that modern-day Babylon tells you the goal of life is your happiness, right? And it's one of the things that we hear. The Bible tells you the goal of life is love. And if you want a life of meaning and purpose, then love God and love your neighbor. That's what the Bible says. But modern-day Babylon would say, no, no, the goal of life is happiness. Everything is about you being happy. When life isn't worth living, you won't be happy until you get everything you want. That's one of the lies of modern-day Babylon. It drives our impatience. And when that happens, when you buy into that lie, and you think you need to have everything right now, what it means is you begin to look at waiting for something as a problem. I mean, I know we love to joke about the old dial-up internet and all the ramp, ramp, beep, beep, you know, like all that stuff. We hated to wait, right? That's just all a part of our forming to make us impatient people. It's all around us. We got to have it now. We got to have it now. We got to have it now. And what we have actually done is create a way of living that makes it impossible for us to be happy. So we're left with all this anxiety and this frustration and this disappointment and this agitation. 
And this is one of the things, if you're going to live in modern-day Babylon, but you want to protect your soul, you've got to learn to be happy in the waiting. If you can't learn to be happy while you're waiting, you will just constantly be needlessly frustrated. Or what I'm trying to say is you and I have to learn to be patient. If you want to have a healthy soul, you have to learn to be patient. Patience is not something our culture values. It's not a virtue in modern-day Babylon. I mean, we are the ones who invented instant coffee, microwave ovens, and the drive through window, though I know the drive through window is not as fast as it once was. We are in a hurry, and technology is changing everything, and we just want it faster and faster, and we get, we get excited when our phone is a, a nanosecond faster than the previous phone, right? I mean, it was just, it's just, we don't want to wait for anything. We hate to wait, and it's forming us, and it's making us impatient. And if you don't recognize how technology is making you impatient, you won't have the self-awareness to realize that you're becoming more and more impatient with yourself, more and more impatient with other people, and more and more impatient with God. But that is what is happening in modern-day Babylon. We've been cultured in speed and instant, and we dislike waiting. But the Bible resists all of it. Our counterscript, our alternative story, it resists it all. The, the Bible has almost nothing positive to say about being in a hurry. The Bible actually seems to regard being in a hurry as some kind of temptation, some kind of inappropriate lust almost. It's only when you and I can slow down. I mean, think about this. It's only when we slow down that we actually catch up with God. <laughs> most of the things that are most valuable, most meaningful in your life, having a character, learning to live like Jesus, being formed, in, it takes time. We'll talk. It takes time. Having relationships of where people know you and you're known and you know them, that takes time. You can't just dial that up. The pace of the Bible is slow. And I know you don't like it when I say this, but love is rarely the most efficient choice in front of you. And if the purpose of life is love, and love is rarely the most efficient choice in front of you, then we've got some wrestling to do in modern-day Babylon. Because when we're in a hurry, we're out of sync with God. Because God is never in a hurry. God says, wait for it. God wants you and I to slow down. Now, I don't want to talk a lot about this, but I want to make one differentiation. I want, to, I want to differentiate between busyness and being in a hurry. Because I think, I think part of living in modern-day Babylon is being busy. Now, some of you are retired and you would say, not anymore. And some of you are retired and say, I'm busier now than I ever was. Oh. But part of whether you're working or retired, part of living in modern-day Babylon is filling your school schedule and filling your schedule and being really busy. And so I want to I differentiate between busyness and hurriedness. If you're busy, it's a full schedule. It's many activities. But, but I want you to think about that as an outward condition that is physically demanding. And it reminds you all the time you need God. I don't have enough energy. I, don't, I need God. I need God. And maybe, maybe you need to adjust your schedule. But, but part of living in modern-day Babylon is being busy. All the parents say amen to that, right? But I want you to see the difference between being busy and being hurried. Because when you're hurried, you're preoccupied. And that means even if you have a lot of, but even if you have, you're unable to be present in the moment. And it's really hard to love people when you're not present with them in the moment. 
It's an inner condition of the soul, and it's spiritually draining. When we talk about our soul, it's not good for your soul. It's toxic for your soul because you're, you're now unavailable to God. God is the one who restores you and refreshes you. You cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. You cannot rest in God with a hurried soul. Jesus himself was often busy, but he was never in a hurry. And if you read through the Gospels, it seems to be that Jesus is quick to detect hurry sickness in others, and he wants to heal them of that. He wants to give them an easy yoke, doesn't he? That's what Jesus does. One author had this to say, are, are, you, are you tired of constantly being in a hurry? Are you tired of living at a pace that blurs out beauty, peace, or joy? Don't you want to be at home? The speed we live at does violence against our souls. The inner and outer distractions minimize the capacity for us to see God's activity around and within us. And he says this, I sometimes imagine a scenario in which someone is locked inside of a supermarket and dies of starvation. Can you imagine? You might say this is impossible, yet in our spiritual lives, this happens every day. Whether we know it or not, we are locked inside the supermarket of God's abundant life and God's abundant love. You are deeply loved. It's all available to us, and even though that's true, people are spiritually starving, and it doesn't have to be that way. God is committed to our transformation. He's not in the business of simply improving our lives. He wants to infuse them with his life. Every day he moves towards us in love, reaching, seeking, and pleading with us to pay attention. Jesus wants to give us his life, and his life is the richest, fullest, most satisfying life there is. It's the only true life there is. That's why sometimes I like to say, Jesus is the answer to all of your questions. He's the solution to all of your problems. He's the fulfillment of all of your desires. And he's the satisfaction of all of your needs. That's what Jesus is. That's what his life does. Jesus wants to infuse you with his life. Now, if you're looking for instant results rather than a long obedience of discipleship, then you're probably going to find the Jesus journey disappointing. Because we love instant. Even in the church, we want everything to happen in an instant. We love a good shortcut. I know, I know it'd be, it'd be, it'd seem, it would seemingly be more satisfying to you if I just ran down the aisle, laid my hand on you, prayed, and boom, miracle, right? But that's just not how Jesus tends to work. And I promise you, his life is more satisfying, so we trust him. There are no shortcuts in the discipleship journey. And we practice the disciplines. What is Daniel doing as God is calling him into patience? You thought it was going to be five years. It's 425 years. Now that's patience. (laughs) What is Daniel doing in chapter 9? He's praying. I like to talk about prayer a lot at Crossview because prayer is so important. Prayer is the slow process by which patience replaces agitation. It's countercultural. Praying well leads to patience. Without praying... Patience is, is, is almost impossible. And I like to talk about prayer because I've gone on a journey in prayer. I like to talk about, I went to prayer school a few years ago and it changed the way I pray. And one of the ways, because I think sometimes, I will say this for myself, a lot of my impatience came from bad habits in prayer. That might be true for you too. But what I mean by that is I really, I don't know that I was discipled in how to pray. And I would just pray my requests. 
And I, I, would, I, would, I would have this long list of requests, and I would just pray. I would just sit down. I would just start praying my requests. And all these things that I needed God to do, right? We talked about this last week. I'm, I'm in a sense, trying to harness God's omnipotence for my benefit. God, do this. God, do this. And it was making me impatient because he wasn't always. I still have people I pray for who don't know Christ, and they don't know Christ. I'm getting impatient, God. Why don't you do what I'm asking you to do? And I started praying a different way five, six, seven years ago. And I started to, to, to pray. It's, kind of, it's almost even what Daniel does in chapter 9, if you read it. I remind myself who God is. I pray Psalm 23. I, I, I pray some other psalms. I pray the Lord's Prayer. I confess my sins. I remind myself that who this God is and what he's done. And some of you have had this experience because a few of you pray the liturgy that I pray. And I still, I still make my request to God because we got to. We got we to ask him. He invites us to ask him. But what I found is when I sit down to pray, after I've spent some time reminding myself who God is, when I get to the place of asking God to do things, a lot of times my petitions change because I'm reminded who this God is. And I'm reminded of what I need and what I thought I need. But now that I remember who God is, I don't need some of the things I thought I needed. And so I pray differently. I put my hope in God rather than in circumstances. When you pray only for circumstances, it feeds the modern day Babylon of impatience. But when you put your hope in God, you realize whether it's five years or 425 years, I'm going to be fine because God is God. Because God is love, because God is in control, because God is merciful and forgiving. And I'm not in control, and that's a good thing. And so whether it's five years or 425 years, whether it's 70 years or 490 years, God's got this. And so my hope's in God and not in my circumstances so I can be patient. I hope that makes sense. I can be patient with God. I can be patient with others. And I can be patient with myself because this discipleship journey is a journey. It, it takes a lifetime. I was reading in one book this little, this little paragraph. The author writes, We serve a perfect Savior who is patient and always ready to forgive us when we fail. When evangelist Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, died in 2007, she chose to have engraved on her gravestone words that had nothing to do with her remarkable achievements. It had to do with the fact that as long as we are alive, God will be working on us, and then we will be free. She had been driving one day along a highway through a construction site, and there were miles of detours and cautionary signs and machinery and equipment, and she finally came to the last one. And the final sign read, end of construction, thank you for your patience. That is what is written over Ruth Graham's grave. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. It takes a lifetime. You can be patient with yourself. You can be patient with others. We can be patient with God. We can be, we can be patient because God's gift of eternal life is eternal. It's not going to run out. So we can be patient. The gift of God is eternal life. We can afford to be patient. That means some of the things you think need to happen before Christmas don't need to happen before Christmas. Some of the things you think need to happen in your life or in the life of other people or in the life of our world, you think your time, it's got to happen. God says, uh. I mean, I was thinking about Daniel. I don't, I don't, I don't know this, but I, I imagine, I do imagine that Daniel starts adding things up and he's in a place of incredible influence and power. And he's like, five years, God, five years. What do I get to do? 
What do I get to do to to be a part of this big fulfillment in five years? And God's like, Daniel, you know what? You played a great role. You've served me well. You're dearly loved. But this isn't on your shoulders. This one's on me. (laughs) I mean, if you look at where the 490 years go, people date it differently. It kind of depends on where you start. But some people date this thing where the 490 years end up in the year 33 when Jesus is crucified and resurrected. I mean, the fulfillment of this prophecy is Jesus. And sometimes you and I think, I got to save the world. I got to change the world. And yes, we will play a part in that because God invites us into his work. But God's the one who saves the world, not you or not me. And I hope that's freeing to you because sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves. I got to get this done. God's like, breathe. Be still and know. I got this. Be patient. I've been working on saving the world for a long time. I'm still working on it, and I'm being patient because I love this world. I mean, that's what he says to Daniel. You are loved. You and I have the love of God, and that is enough. I think I've said this before, but God does not promise a quick fix in the Bible. But God does promise endless love. Read through Romans 8. I love that chapter. Read how Paul ends that chapter. That's why in this series, I've said a few times, in Christ Jesus, if it hasn't finished well, it hasn't finished yet. So be patient. In Christ Jesus, no story is left as a tragedy, so be patient. You say, right now my story is a tragedy. I say, I believe you, but be patient. Because if your story hasn't finished well, it hasn't finished yet in Christ. Because Christ is working good And so you and I wait. We learn to wait. We learn patience. Waiting is an acknowledgement of our limitation, a sign of our trust in God, and an embrace of the fact that it is God's work to change the world, not ours. He'll invite us in. We'll play a role. We have a purpose to play, but we're not his whole plan. The whole plan of God to save the world is Jesus. And you and I are privileged to join him in that work. So when you've been through a trial or you're in exile of your own and every date you set for your breakthrough deliverance has come and gone, you and I can be patient with God because we are deeply loved. When 70 years becomes 490 years, we can be patient with God because we are deeply loved. We can be patient with one another. And I want to end with this story. I might have shared this once before, but I thought of it this week. I think it's a true story. A missionary family was home from furlough. I think it was a a brother and two older sisters, they were staying at, someone, they were at someone's lake house. The kids are all down playing on the dock by the water. The youngest, the son, falls in the water. He can't swim. The daughters start freaking out, yelling. Dad comes running, dives into the water. Goes down, doesn't find him, comes up, grabs air. Goes down, doesn't find him, comes up, grabs air. Goes down and finds him. And what's the son doing? He is bear hugging the dock. Just, I mean, just imagine, you're in the, you know if you've ever been in that metaphorical situation, but the pressure is pushing in, it's dark, you're having trouble breathing, you're just clinging to the, the, the post of the dock. Dad pries him loose, brings him up, gets him on the ground, gets him breathing again, and finally looks at his son and says, son, what were you doing down there? Son looks at his dad and says, I was just waiting on you, Dad. I was just waiting on you. I mean, that's our posture. I know it's dark and there's pressure and sometimes it's hard, to, it's hard to breathe in the world that we're in. But we're waiting on God. Now, one last thing and then we're going to go to communion. I want to say this. Some of you hear me say we're waiting on God and you think I'm saying we're passive. I am not. 
I promise you, if you obey the commandments of Jesus, you will realize there's nothing, there's nothing passive about the Christian faith. If you love in the active way that Jesus calls us to love, there's nothing passive about it. We engage in love. We love a broken world. It takes all of us to do it. It's not passive. But we are not in control managing the time. We are patient. And if things don't go the way we think they should go or the way we want them to go, we don't flip out. We're patient, right? We're patient. Let's be countercultural. I, I think it's one of the ways we'll be countercultural in modern-day Babylon. If you are patient, your neighbors are going, how can you be so patient? Well, let me tell you about Jesus, because <laughs> he's the only way. Let me tell you about my prayer life, because it's the only way. Amen? All right, let's, let's pray. Now, Jesus, we do want to pause We want to confess our sins right now. That's what we want to do. We're about to to do something that we can't explain. This is a mystery. The church has gotten in trouble when it's tried to explain communion. So we confess more than we can explain. We believe your word. And somehow we are feasting on your body and your blood. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow in the mystery of your love for us, As we eat this bread and drink this juice, we are participating in your very real resurrected life. And so we come in all honesty and in all humility. We confess our sins, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Maybe there's something personal right now that the Spirit of God, Spirit of God, you want to convict us of. Maybe it's just as we talk about impatience. I think every one of us can confess impatience this morning. Impatience with ourselves, impatience with people we love and impatience with you, God, and we confess it. And we are so grateful that we are assured your forgiveness. So hear our confession and nourish us with your life, Jesus. Amen.